My name is Drew. I'm one of the pastors here at Sojourn Heights. As Eric said, we are beginning today an 11-week sermon series through, the, through Paul's letter to the Galatians. And over the next 11 weeks, you're going to be hearing from seven different preachers. So that is going to be interesting. Um, we've put a lot of effort into keeping this series as unified and cohesive as possible. But even so, please, please bear with us. And if you're interested in going deeper in your personal study, I will reiterate that Galatians study that we're holding every Sunday night um, here in the sanctuary. Um, in, in 2 Peter 3, verse 16, the Apostle Peter writes, quote, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And that's a bit ironic because most of what Peter wrote was hard to understand. Um, but, but Peter was a fisherman and Paul was a theological prodigy educated in the most elite schools of his day. And so it's both encouraging and daunting to hear Peter's thoughts on Paul. Um, in fact, the, the book of Second Peter was written long after the book of Galatians, and so it's, it's likely that Peter had the book of Galatians in mind when he wrote that. Bottom line, the book of Galatians is difficult to understand. Here we go. Time after time, the Apostle Paul wrote letters to the early church in order to defend and clarify the Christian gospel, to defend and clarify the truth, the good news that Jesus is Lord of all. In this letter to the Galatians, Paul addresses all sorts of issues, but it's always for the purpose of defending and clarifying the gospel. Galatians is all about the gospel. Paul contends that the Galatians have abandoned the gospel for something else entirely. Most of Paul's letters devote significant time and attention to greetings and thanksgivings, but here in the book of Galatians, he, he opens almost immediately with a rebuke. Why? That's, that's what we're trying to answer today. What was the heresy in Galatia? What false teaching was threatening the gospel and the integrity of the church? Let's read beginning in verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through men, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. So, first of all, Paul was a Jew. In fact, most Christ followers were Jews at this point in church history. And that sounds strange, strange to us, because today, Jewish Christians are the minority, right? But in first century Galatia, Jewish Christians were the majority, and everyone else was trying to fit into that community, okay? So Paul was a Jew, but he believed that the gospel message had universal implications for all of mankind, even non-Jews. And these non-Jews are what the Bible calls Gentiles. Paul was an apostle to the Gentiles. An apostle is simply a person sent to accomplish a task on behalf of a greater authority, a person sent to accomplish a task on behalf of a greater authority. Paul was personally commissioned by the resurrected Jesus to take the gospel to the nations. Now picking back up in verse three. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins to to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be glory forever and ever, amen. So Jesus gave himself 
Jesus offered himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And having thus dealt with sin, Jesus brings us out of the present evil age and into a new world. Jesus is calling every man, woman, and child on earth to acknowledge his kingship and join him in his new creation work. Now, it's pretty common for Gentile Christians, that is us, almost without exception, it's pretty common for Gentile Christians to read Galatians as an anti-law, anti-Judaism letter. But I think Paul's intent was a bit more nuanced than that. See, there was a highly combustible compound within the early church. Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians were, were attempting to coexist within the same Christian communities. So the, the Jews were God's chosen people, the recipients and stewards of God's covenant promises. The Gentiles were traditionally considered unclean outsiders. So the false teachers in Galatia were attempting to impose certain rules and rituals upon the Gentiles, effectively requiring them to become Jews in order to belong to the church. In essence, they were, they were rebuilding walls of division that Jesus had already torn down. They're rebuilding walls of division that Jesus had already torn down. Following the American Civil War, black members of predominantly white churches continued to face unequal and truly unchristian treatment, even within the church. And in response, they left en masse to start their own churches. And the root of the problem was that white Christians were unwilling to make room for their black brothers and sisters. They refused to tear down walls of division. And, and likewise, in the early church, the Jews in Galatia were failing to make room for the Gentiles. Now, to be fair, these were not unreasonable conclusions for the Jews to make. It would have been reasonable for the Jews to expect Gentiles to become Jews. After all, that was standard practice for thousands of years. Judaism was a pretty exclusive club, and now the doors had been blown wide open for the Gentiles to come in. And so there was an, there was an element of self-preservation in this false teaching. Uh, the Jews feared that Gentile inclusion would compromise their distinctly Jewish identity. On top of that, the Gentiles themselves had good reasons for becoming Jews. Judaism was a legal religion within the Roman Empire at this time, and so Jewish status gave Gentiles protection under Roman law. Plus, in becoming Jews, they could escape the social ambiguity of living as minorities within a church community that refused to accept them as full members. Right? So in this respect, the Galatian heresy was understandable, but apparently some were making an even more dangerous mistake. Some were teaching and believing that salvation was only available to Jews. Every Gentile, therefore, needed to become a Jew in order to be saved. And this was all very astonishing to Paul. According to Paul, with respect to our salvation in Christ, the old distinctions of Jew and Gentile were of no consequence. As we said earlier, Jesus brings us out of the old world and into the new. So to cling to the practices of the old world was to deny what Jesus had done. Again, they were rebuilding walls of division that Jesus had torn down. 
Plus, Paul argues, we lay hold of God's promises by faith, not by performing Jewish rituals. Remember, Paul insisted that the gospel message had universal implications for all human beings. So if all Gentile Christians were to become Jewish Christians, no Gentile Christians would remain, and the universality of the gospel would be undermined, compromised. God wants every nation to worship him. He does not want every nation to become a Jewish nation. And so Paul was swooping in to protect God's gospel, God's church, and ultimately God's mission. In the first century, Gentiles were an endangered species. And so Paul writes this letter in order to preserve the Gentileness of the Gentiles and to remind everyone that salvation comes by grace through faith and nothing else. So Paul writes in verse 6, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul's language is very strong here. This is not a small mistake. This is a total abandonment. Paul accuses them of deserting God and reversing the gospel. That's what the root word for distort means in verse 7, to turn around. The Galatians were undoing things. Jesus had led them out of the old world into the new, and they were heading back into the old world. So Paul makes one thing very clear. There is only one gospel. There's really no such thing as a different gospel. Changing the gospel reverses the gospel. Adding rules and rituals to the gospel reverses the gospel. That's because God loves his people before they are his people. It's only on the basis of God's love and favor that he gives us rules and rituals. It's only on the basis of God's love and favor. The Bible follows that pattern repeatedly, and so to turn around and teach that rules and rituals were necessary for earning God's favor is a fundamental reversal. It reverses the true order of things. It gets the gospel exactly backwards. So how can, how can we ensure the gospel we believe is actually the one true gospel? The standard that Paul gives us is this. The one true gospel is the gospel that he and the other apostles receive from Jesus and teach through the Bible. Through the Bible. Now you might say, how convenient. Um, Paul is claiming that the one true gospel is the gospel he's proclaiming. Surprise, surprise. But, but look at what he says in verse eight. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. Paul includes himself. Even if we. See, the gospel did not come to Paul through human reasoning and reflection. Jesus gave Paul the gospel. It's not Paul's to change. And so he says, if I ever tell you anything to the contrary, let me be accursed. 
That's a pretty humble posture for a guy who's claiming that his message is the message to judge all other messages. And the New Testament writings of the apostles provide a standard according to which you should judge my sermon and every sermon you hear for the rest of your life. It's the standard according to which you should judge your books and podcasts and Bible studies and parish discussions. This is a huge reason why you need to know the Bible and believe it even when it tells you you're wrong. Because American Christianity is confused. According to a survey conducted last year, 2016, 39% of American evangelicals believe good deeds help to earn our place in heaven. 30% of American evangelicals believe the Bible was written for each of us to interpret as we choose. But according to Paul, if, if we hold these beliefs, we forfeit the gospel. There are other more subtle distortions of the gospel too. The United States is a nation of doers. We can be anything we want to be, accomplish anything we want to accomplish. We don't like when things are done for us, and we definitely don't like when things are done to us. And so we're always tempted to try and earn our salvation. We struggle to believe that we are saved by God's grace. Rather, we like to say we're saved by faith. And that's a subtle distortion but we turn faith into an act that earns salvation. We merit salvation through our free will decision to exercise faith. If only we could conjure up enough faith to take hold of what God is offering. But faith is an act of self-renunciation. Faith renounces the attempt to make something of ourselves and, and hands everything over to God as the source of life and blessing. So we never have to wonder whether we have enough faith because faith by its very nature acknowledges our inability to have enough of anything. Take a look at verse 10. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. If only Paul had taught Gentiles to follow through with these rituals, he could have earned favor with the other Jews. A more socially acceptable gospel was this. Trust in Jesus for salvation, but afterwards, you need to eventually take upon yourself all the obligations of Jewish life. If only Paul had preached that message, he would not have been thrown out of the synagogues. He would not have faced the same persecution. And yet he says, I'm not doing this to win friends. I'm not preaching to please men. I'm preaching the message Jesus gave me to preach, come what may. Now, for the sake of clarity, what was that message? This is going to be really important for us as we continue through Paul's letter to the Galatians. What was his message? According to Paul, God has finally unveiled his plan for the world. And he, he did so in Jesus Christ. Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, the King of kings, the Lord of all creation. Jesus was crucified despite his innocence. 
despite his moral perfection, and yet God the Father raised him from the dead. He's alive today. And according to Paul, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus demonstrate that God is now building a new family, one single family with no divisions, no partiality, no segregation along any lines whatsoever. If Jesus is the Lord of all the world and he is calling us into his family, then all the world is becoming one family in Jesus. Therefore, even though Jesus was a Jew, we don't have to become Jews in order to belong. We don't have to become Jews in order to join God's kingdom. So we, re- we need to read Galatians in light of the gospel of God's global, all-encompassing kingdom. We cannot afford to narrow the scope of Galatians by making it all about how individuals get saved. So Galatians does spend time answering that question, but only in support of a larger argument, that the kingdom of heaven is coming and Jesus is laying claim to every nation on the earth, not just Israel. So, why is that good news? Why should you care? Well, because in 2017, there is one thing that unites most Americans. It's political dissatisfaction. You may be to the left of Bernie Sanders, you may be to the right of Rush Limbaugh, but you're not satisfied with the state of American politics. And thankfully, the gospel is inherently political. Now that's a controversial thing for me to say. It's a controversial way for me to say it. So let me explain. The gospel tells us that Jesus is the king of kings and that his kingdom is coming. That means Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Angela Merkel, Queen Elizabeth, Pope Francis, every other world leader must acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ. They will do it today or they will do it one day. There's no such thing as a supreme leader apart from Jesus Christ. That's a deeply political claim, but it's political in the best way possible. It means we don't have to keep longing for a humble, morally upright, selfless, and self-sacrificing political leader because we already have one. Jesus is the supreme leader of a nation of nations and every political leader on this planet is subject to his rule and reign. If they knew that, they would tremble. And because we know that, we don't have to. This puts politics back in its rightful place. It's important, but it's not ultimate. Christians are not called to win debates and elections. We are called to help build a society marked by genuine neighbor love and worship of the one true king. And on occasion, that looks like losing. Sometimes we tend to over-spiritualize the coming of this kingdom as though the kingdom were a spiritual reality but not a present, material, real-world reality. We're comfortable with the kingdom coming in our hearts, but not so comfortable with the kingdom coming through our manner of living. And so we say, 
The kingdom comes through evangelism and a bunch of people getting saved. And that's true. It's just incomplete. The gospel is not merely Jesus saves. The gospel is also Jesus is the king of everything. Jesus is not merely laying claim to disembodied souls. He's laying claim to our bodies, our jobs, our houses, our singleness, our marriages, our children, all of it. If the gospel is merely Jesus saves, then we can plant white churches, black churches, Korean churches, Canadian churches, Mexican churches, and so on. If the goal is simply to get as many people converted as possible, then we should do whatever is most expedient. But if the gospel is also Jesus is the king of everything and his kingdom is coming, then we have to learn how to get along. The goal is more than conversion, it's new creation. In other words, when it comes to the church, God cares about the how. Jesus is not just stamping his rubber seal of approval on a bunch of individuals. He is manifesting his glorious royal presence through a global family of redeemed children. That has profound implications on life today, not just life after death. So over the next 10 weeks, as we make our way through Paul's letter to the Galatians, I pray that the good news of the kingdom of God will appear increasingly glorious to us. May we come to appreciate the radical inclusiveness of God's family. May we dream bold new dreams about a future where division no longer marks the people of God. Or better yet, bold new dreams about a future where division no longer marks life on this planet. Because it's coming. God's kingdom is a kingdom marked by diversity, but never division. And I think that is Paul's main point in the letter of Galatians. That's what Jesus wants for the new world, the new world that he's calling us to help him build. The new world has already begun. It began with his resurrection. And we are called to leave behind everything that belongs to the present evil age. We're called to leave behind all the brokenness and division in the tomb of Jesus and get up and follow him into the new world. Let's pray.